Okay, uh, welcome to Not the Wikipedia Weekly. My name is uh, Eric. I go by the username Scartol on the English Wikipedia. And we are joined here on the call by uh, user Moni3. Hi there. Uh, we have user Yellow Submarine, who signs as Maria. Hello. We have Awatawit, who uh, signs as Awatawit. Hello. And we have user Phil with three L's. How do you do? We are hosting, and uh, yeah, we're hosting this podcast about copy editing. Um, Awatawit and I sort of came up with it because we figure there's a lot of stuff that should be said about copy editing, what it is, why it's important, and how to do it well. Uh, so we've sort of uh, snuck into the Not the Wikipedia Weekly uh, guys in order to uh, have a discussion about all this stuff. Let's start with the basics. What is copy editing? So do we think it's made up of several different elements, like fixing well, my, small – yeah, go ahead. My theory was that it's two main elements, and one of them is adhering to the manual of style, and the other is a little bit more um, nebulous. It's, it's the flow in, and uh, the, the syntax of the words and how they're used, and if it's interesting, if it's compelling, or if they're not, and they're really boring. There's a book called uh, Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud, which is a really interesting look at art and everything. And he talks about the um, process of creating art, and you know, he talks about the six steps. And, and the, the, the core of the artwork is sort of like the seed of the apple, you know. And as you get away further from the seed, you end up with sort of the, the matters of polish and the glossy elements. And I think that's really, for me, where copy editing is. You know, if, if the writing element and the research is sort of at the core of the work, then when you get further toward the outside and you get further, further along, in the process, uh, that's where you get into copy editing. So it's not so much about resources or about research, but it's about um, the, the the nuts and bolts types of things, the, the fixing up the way it looks and sounds and all that stuff. Polishing. Polishing. So I think part of it is is really artistic, right? Making it making it get that sort of brilliant prose um, idea, uh, making it sound like it was written. Um, by someone who is a real writer, a real author. Um, and that's when you have to start worrying about, um, did I select the the best word that I could have chosen um, to reflect every single idea that I want to say? You know, is, is the diction that I've used in this in this article the most precise? Mm-hmm. Um, and the other side of it is is mechanical. Um, gram- did I make any grammar? errors, for example, um, and have I used the, the proper wiki code um, to make it appear on the screen, for example. Yeah, and when we talk about that artistic element, you know, this is sort of a, one of the criteria for featured article, uh, brilliant prose, as it says. You know, th- I think there, there, in some cases there's a disagreement about what brilliant prose is. That is to say, you know, in some cases people think it should be as simple as possible, as, as, um, as uncomplicated as possible. And other folks will say, you know, in certain instances you need to have the fancier word. You need to have something that's a little more precise, even if that means that it's sort of a $10 word uh, rather than a uh, $0.50 cent word. Uh, Moni, did you want to talk about compelling prose? Well, uh, I, I think that there's compelling prose is, is a huge element of a featured article where I can read uh, an article on a topic that I'm interested in and not understand quite what the 
author is trying to get across, and it really is either confusing or I start to drift, and I, and I you know I'd rather click on blue links than read further in the article, or I can start reading an article thought I, that I never had any kind of interest in, and then become so engrossed in it that you know it's completely completely moving, and I remember something that happened to me, uh, something. And an article I read was was Emily Dickinson's actually, which Maria wrote. And by the time by the end of her biography, I was completely immersed in in this article and right along with Emily Dickinson. And that is what compelling prose is. And I've I've read others that um, I just drift away and it's kind of you know I feel like I'm ADD and you know it's, it's something about the prose and I think it's a movement in 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 the words and if they're choppy then they don't connect well, and then they don't really express what uh, what's trying to be said. Mm-hmm. Awadawa, did you want to say something about that? the need for having that in science articles? Um, yeah, I think another element of compelling prose is accessibility, which means that um, a general audience can read the article and understand um, the the main points that are being made, and this is particularly important, I feel, in the science articles, um, where it's very easy to fall into scientific jargon, and you end up having to click on every link to understand what the article is um, trying to say. And sometimes that's extremely difficult uh, for people who aren't familiar with the jargon. You just get tired of the clicking, and you just give up, and you don't read. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times, actually, I try to review science articles on topics that I don't know anything about, and I write what I think the paragraph says in my own sort of humanities lay speak Mm-hmm. And I say, well, this is what I got out of the paragraph. And sometimes yeah. it's kind of frightening to the scientists because they're like, oh, my God. Yeah. But, I you think... know, it's, it's, a, it's good practice. And I actually um, really welcome having scientists read articles that I've written about humanities topics because a lot of times I fall into um, the jargon of my own field, literary right. criticism, and I don't realize I'm doing it just because yeah. I use those words all the time. No doubt. <laughs> I think this is something that comes up a lot in, like, technology stuff, but it's true across the board is that – it's very hard for us to remember what it's like for people who haven't been through the processes that we've been through. So we have our trouble, and I think it's really important for people who are writing, and especially for people who are, you know, going to help make the writing better, to to think about what what are our assumptions, what are, and to try to challenge your assumptions and think, okay, if a person has just sort of a basic knowledge about the world, but they don't have any specific knowledge about, you know, Honoré de Balzac or the Everglades or whatever it is. What do we need to orient them with in order to let them enter this world that they're reading about? And I think that's where where we come back to the part that Moni was talking about about what you know. Can you give me something that I can grab about Emily Dickinson and really want to keep going with it? And that I think is what is you know really engaging for me. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, an article where actually I wouldn't be particularly interested in the topic, the writing can draw me into it, mm-hmm. um, or the writing can push me away from it. Yeah. Maria, did you have a comment, or did I hear just background noise? So, yeah, the uh, accessibility issue and the fact that it reaches across different fields, just people don't understand because it gets so close to the subject material as well, mm-hmm. whether or not it's it's their thing. And I had that issue reading film articles. You would think that film articles would be accessible to everybody, but mm-hmm. it depends what uh, the film's about. It depends how the film was made, where it was made, who these people are. People just throw out terms or persons, and they expect, because they know who they are, that the reader would know who they are. And even though they include a blue link, they think that saying a person blue link 
that's enough, but really it's not. And I think it's it's something as simple as just giving some kind of an introduction to something. Mm-hmm. And that's something that when I do copy edit, I say, who is this person? When did this happen? Where? Mm-hmm. And, and something as simple as that can really help improve an article. Yeah, no doubt. Moni? Well, one of the things I did when I read, uh, excuse me, when I wrote the uh, five articles on the Everglades is that I did quite a few Google searches on information, and what I found kept coming up over and over and over again, I tended to put at the top of the articles so that people who generally knew a little bit about the, the Everglades would read in the lead, yes, I'm familiar with that, and then they could go deeper into the subject in more detail. And then one of those things was everybody's heard of the Everglades being the river of grass, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas described in 1947. So that ended up being at the top of almost every lead. Uh, so people could could grasp onto that and say, well, I've heard of that, I'm familiar with that. And then they can go deeper into more detail that's more scientific, that describes that, or even, even in some cases dispels that. Sure. And I think in terms of you know one's uh, closeness to the material, I think that has a direct connection to copy editing as well because the more you work on something, the more you fall back on your own assumptions, the more familiar you are with the way it sounds, and the more you feel like you don't need to explain stuff from a more objective standpoint. And so when you're working on an article, you do that sort of thing over and over again. It's very important to get some distance between that. So when we start talking about ways to get better at copy editing, I think that's one of the things we'll see is that a lot of people will tell you the best way to, to get um, ideas about, you know, um, Improving your copy editing is that, yeah, you get fresh eyes on it, you you, you get some distance, you give a, yourself a break, and you um, try to find a way to d- disconnect your mind from the track that it's been on in terms of looking at it in a fresh way. Awada, you had something to say about sports and copy editing? Well, um, accessibility. Yeah, I was going to say this. It's another topic that often is is written about in a very narrow way. Um, And I had written, I had read a couple of articles on professional wrestling and baseball that were written again with a sort of jargony tone. And I mentioned this to the editors, and they dramatically improved this. And I, I think it had just not occurred to them that it was um, written um, in such a, a. a narrow sort of almost like in universe way when you think about it mm-hmm. with uh, mm-hmm. with such jargon but yeah i mean i think what we're talking about is it's really important to have people who are not so close to the topic or haven't spent so much time on the particular article read and copy edit the article i mean even just give advice even if they aren't copy edited saying i don't understand this section or or that sort of thing yeah and if I could just jump in real quick, uh, one of the things I think is important for us to recognize when we're working on articles for Wikipedia is that we invest a lot of time and energy into this. And in some ways, I mean, you know, speaking personally, I do get a certain, you know, what's called ego stroking or whatever you want to call it, you know, satisfaction from having my contributions recognized. But I think it's also important for editors on Wikipedia and people who write in general to realize that you have to let go of that and that if you really, you know, the, the choice has to be. Do you want the article be, to be the best it can be, or do you want to have your contributions recognized and you know fawned over? Because if it's if you're going for the quality of the work, you have to be able to say, okay, I need someone else to comment on this, and I need to take their comment seriously. Uh, I've had a couple situations, not many, but there have been a few where people have asked me to comment on an article, and I'll give some comments, and they'll say, oh, well, the reason I'm not going to change that is X, Y, and Z, and the reason this other thing doesn't matter is X, Y, and Z, and it's it's ridiculous to have that attitude if you're going to really seek someone else's opinion. So 
I don't know. Um, yeah, let's maybe that can lead us into a segue about why copy editing is important in the first place. I mean, why should we bother with all these grammatical rules and, and you know, sweating over readability and things like that? Yeah, why should we worry about grammar? What do you guys think? Well, I know that I, I correct a lot of grammar mistakes on Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I, Money, I oftentimes I read something oh, wait, Phil? and I think Gee, this isn't Phil. quite English, this kind of grates on me. Or even worse, I read it and I say, boy, I can't understand this at all. I don't even understand what they meant. So that, it's bad enough if, if it grates, but if I can't understand it, it's it's very – it really isn't doing the reader any, any – um, service so I quite often will note I'll try to edit them if I can if I can't I will just copy the the sentence to the talk page and ask what they what they meant and say that I couldn't understand it sometimes that that isn't always taken um, in the same kind of spirit in which I offered the advice they're not always very happy when I do that but And especially when it's unsolicited. Sometimes people just have, you know, sensitive nerves and they feel like they're being attacked or something. So I think it's useful to approach it tactfully. But on the other hand, I think, yeah, it comes back to this question about um, so forth and so on. Moni had a thought about uh, why we should bother? Sure, yeah. Well, you know, there's there's always as much time as, as people spend and much research and effort and, you know, money even that they spend on the research that they do to put into – a Wikipedia article, there's a lot of emotion invested in this. And there comes a point, though, where you have to decide what is going to be best for the article, what's going to be best for the subject even. And I'm, I'm fond of saying that you have to, if you spend all that time, you have to honor your subject, which means you have to give it up. It means you have to give up the ownership of the article for, for the betterment of the article, which mm-hmm. means people have to tinker with it and they have to criticize it. And all the time and effort that you spent, people are, you know, copy editors or peer reviews, they're, they're going to have to say, you're going to have to change it because all these wonderful things you thought you put in there aren't as wonderful as, as you as you thought you had in there. Mm-hmm. So in that case, you, you kind of have to give it up after after a certain step. Yeah. What of it? Um, yeah, I mean, I think in general what we're talking about is are you getting across the ideas you thought you were getting across mm-hmm. yeah. uh, to the reader? I mean, uh, that's what Phil was talking about when he leaves notes on people's pages. I, I didn't understand what you were saying, and, you know, that's what Money was talking about when she said you have to offer it to, you know, peer reviewers and, and say, well, what do you think? You know, what What am I saying here? Did, did you get what I'm saying? You know, mm-hmm. yeah. did, did you get the, the, the wonderfulness of the topic, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's the first reason we really have to pay attention to, to things like grammar and the organization of sentences and paragraphs is can the reader understand what we're saying? And actually, that's a lot of the rules of grammar are about that. So, for example, if your pronouns don't refer back to um, actual uh, – you know, cl- clear subjects, the readers aren't going to be able to understand what you're talking about. That would be mm-hmm. one example. And I think mm-hmm. another reason we have to focus so carefully on, on writing and things like grammar is because it makes Wikipedia look more respectable. It mm-hmm. makes it look like a legitimate reference source. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you go to an article that's has sentence fragments everywhere and grammar mistakes and no mm-hmm. punctuation and no capitalization, people are going to look at it and go, well, why should I listen to this is mm-hmm. clearly written by someone who has no idea what they're doing. 
I mean, good writing lends legitimacy. Yeah, it's like wearing a tie if you go for a job interview or something. Like, you you may know what you're talking about even if you're not wearing a tie, but it gives you that, yeah, sort of air of respectability at the first step. You know, Moni mentioned the question about, you know, what will be best for the article, and I think it's particularly tricky on Wikipedia because, especially if, you know, one takes, as many of us do, um, a subject and then we sort of go into it and we do, you know, weeks and weeks of research on it, or months even sometimes, um, we, we come to feel like we really know about what's best for the article, and in many cases we do, which is to say, you know, if some random IP editor comes along and says, you know, oh, you know, this sentence is stupid, or this doesn't make sense, or nobody cares about that, we feel like, you know, hey, look, I've spent a lot of time researching this, I, I feel like I'm more of an authority than this random, you know, could be some 13-year-old kid, you know, who doesn't know anything about the topic, um, and so it's important, I think, it's, it's tricky, because you don't want to give up all of your legitimacy as, you know, sort of an amateur expert, if you will, somebody who spent a lot of time researching something. Um, uh, but when it comes to copy editing, of course, you know, it's about more stepping up, stepping back, and, and it, it, we aren't as, I think, personally invested in it. Um, but I think it is recognizing that there is a, a there is a, a specific um, difficulty, I think, with getting that distance and trying to understand what's best for the article on Wikipedia because we have so many different voices with so many different levels of expertise weighing in on things that um, they may be right about, um, but that, yeah, it can be a little trickier next time. Um, Moni, did you have something you wanted to comment on that? I believe it was a water that was saying that uh, respectability is something that, that needs to... Uh that Wikipedia needs to concentrate on because, number one, it's really popular. It's a really popular site. It's one of the most popular sites uh, on the Internet. So, it, oh, of course, it, it gets a lot of uh, gets a lot of criticism. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, uh, I think it was Phil talking about, you know, a tie is more respectable. We're talking about, you know, copy editing in, in articles. You're talking about wearing clothes in front of people, not just a tie. <laughs> yeah. so, so because it's so because it's so popular, because it's so um, – uh, so visited by so many people, then uh, it's also uh, quite a target I was just gonna for note, as much criticism uh, as possible. Most, most people know yeah. me, know that I'm um, quite active excuse in some me, of Phil? the more controversial parts of Wikipedia, which have a slightly different character than the more general articles. There's a tiny, tiny fr uh, fraction of articles which are quite controversial in political areas or in religion uh, and, and other unusual areas. And I have noticed in many of those areas when when some of your fellow editors have a very strong bias in some direction or other, they seem to misunderstand even the plainest prose almost on purpose, or it appears to be on purpose. Uh, it might be inadvertent. And it's very, very difficult to actually actually come to some sort of resolution on how this should be, uh, how this should be described properly because they... They don't actually want it to, to say what you're intending it to say. They, they're aiming for something else, and they'll just say, well, this isn't clear. But it's not, it's not that it's not clear. It's, it's that they have something else in mind, really, and using that just as kind of a straw man to, um, to attack the article because they really want it to present yeah. their own personal point of view. And uh, So I'll notice that it's, yeah. copy editing in those circumstances can be quite different than copy editing in a normal right normal article. Yeah, Maria, you were talking about topics? Yeah, I just, I thought it was interesting that uh, some articles receive more picky copy editors, and I don't know if it's because of the subject matter 
or if it's because the copy editors who would be attracted to that kind of subject in the first place. Mm-hmm. If you look at Mary Wollstonecraft, then of course, you know, she's Mary Wollstonecraft. She needs to have the most brilliant prose <laughs> possible to, in order to, you know, show how awesome she is. Whereas, you know, my first featured article was about a baby polar bear. Hey, he was pretty awesome. <laughs> He's pretty awesome. Yeah. But didn't receive as much as academia sort of mm-hmm. centered reviews as something more literary or right. more high end, you would think. Yeah. So I think I don't think it would be prejudice. It's just that the certain amount of attention that certain articles would receive. Sure. Yeah, no doubt. Um, you know, I would say that uh, in terms of yeah, you know, when we when we have that sort of copy editing going on and, 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 you know, it's not directly related to that, but I think it's important for us to recognize that there is a balance that needs to be achieved between accepting advice from other people and standing firm with what we believe. And this is really getting into some of the more broad scale stuff, not so much about copy editing. Um, but when we talk about the artistic elements of copy editing and what makes engaging prose, um, I think it's, it's valid for us to say, you know, there is a place for, you know, this phrasing that I've got because I think, you know, it, it helps the reader with X, Y, and Z. Um, but I think, uh, there, there has to be that balance there between recognizing that, you know, what, what you think is valid has a reason. And if we can, um, say, okay, you know, this is why I think it should stay. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be an edit war so much as it is an actual discussion. Um, and, uh, yeah. Finding that balance. Anyway, um, Awadawit, you wanted to talk about writing in different topics. Go ahead. Yeah, I actually think it's really interesting that there's a much higher bar for the kind of brilliant prose that's supposed to appear in, say, literary um, articles. For some reason, if you're writing about a literary topic, you yourself are supposed to be a brilliant writer. I've never really quite understood that. That somehow, like by osmosis, I am supposed to be as brilliant a writer as Mary Wollstonecraft. <laughs> Just how would she write the Wikipedia her. page about? <laughs> right, exactly. I actually think that articles on baby polar bears should be written just as well as articles on Mary Wollstonecraft, the writing on Wikipedia should be fabulous everywhere. And I'll say it is on Newt. It's a pretty fabulous article. It's a good article. But, you know, I was, I actually, the, the idea that some articles should be written better than others because of their topic, um, I've always had a sort of a problem with that. Just like the idea that some articles should be illustrated better because they're about, say, a painting. We should have great images in every article. We should strive to have quality images everywhere. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, I really think that we shouldn't differentiate really in that way. You know, we should have a high bar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think we all agree with that. Um, okay. Um, let's talk about some common mistakes that we see when we are doing copy editing or we see articles being discussed. Yeah, let me um, weigh in. Somebody uh, want to start the, with one of the most common examples find, or things that you see in general? I find is run-on sentences. So these seem to be sentences where maybe a whole paragraph, and it might be 50, 60 word long sentences appear in uh, one paragraph is one sentence, a very, very long sentence with a whole bunch of ideas or phrases strung together with a variety of um, commas or and or uh, semicolons and colons, kind of indiscriminately and uh, and sometimes with parentheses. Sometimes I've seen nested parentheses with mm-hmm. parentheses inside parentheses with side thoughts to them 
where maybe they should have been thinking about maybe where a footnote might be appropriate or something if they want some kind mm -hmm. of a, an aside on, on something. Instead, they'll make uh, nested parentheses two or three deep, which could be, uh, well, it's just not very good writing, I don't think. It's certainly frustrating to try to read it. And that's probably the most common thing I find, is people who just don't want to end a sentence, they just can't bear to have something 10 mm -hmm. words long, put a period, yeah. and then start a new sentence. They just have to jam as many thoughts together in one long, long, long sentence. I think that's probably mm -hmm. my main complaint. Yeah. Absolutely. It's a big problem, and as an English teacher at a high school, uh, I definitely see that a lot. I think the number one thing I can say to you – know, the number one thing I say to my students and the number one thing I'll say to all the dedicated fans out there is that it's important to have a variety of sentence lengths and um, – just because a sentence is long does not necessarily mean that it's well constructed. So, you know, the, the thing to look at is this. If, if you have a complete thought, that's a sentence. And you shouldn't string together two complete thoughts just for the sake of stringing them together. Now, having said that, a semicolon can be used to join two things that otherwise would be two sentences, but you have to do it right. And how do you get better at doing it right? Well, you know, Tony has some things is useful. Um, yeah, reading articles out loud is very helpful. Uh, there are a lot of ways to get better at it, but I think the key thing to remember is when you get done with one thought, finish your sentence and go on to another one. And if you decide later on that it, it's, it's much easier to take sentences that are choppy and combine them than it is to take some that are running on and on and on and separate them. Because first you have to go through and figure out what the thoughts are and then you have to separate them. So yeah. Um, also in terms of the comma splice, which is what you were talking about there with sentences that go on and on and don't seem to end, um, a lot of times people will take two independent thoughts and join them together with just a comma. Well, a comma is not enough. It needs to be a semicolon or a comma and a coordinating conjunction like and, but, yet, so, or one of those. Um, okay, uh, let's see. Da, 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 da. Moni had something she wanted to say. Yeah, one of the more, more common comments that I make for first or some uh, featured article candidates is that uh, many times their uh, paragraphs um, really don't have any topic sentences. And especially for people who are reading this who are completely unfamiliar with the topic about what to expect or what kind of point that it is you're trying to get across, that not only topic sentences for paragraphs, but topic sentences for entire sections are extraordinarily helpful. And they make the article more cohesive, and they help with that brilliance. They help with that compelling writing so that people are able to understand it a lot better and are, are able to ease into information that they're unfamiliar with a lot more smoothly. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, uh, what of it? Um, yeah, I guess one of my pet peeves is this at the beginning of paragraphs because this is – um, a vague pronoun that you have no idea what it's referring back to. Because can you give us an example of when someone might use that? Um, you can use it um, in sentences that refer clearly back to um, a noun at the end of the previous sentence or in the middle of a sentence that refers back to a noun clearly um, in the middle of the sentence. But to use it at the beginning of a paragraph, it's not clear what it's referring back to. It can refer back to the entire idea of the previous paragraph. It can refer back to the last noun of the previous paragraph. It can refer back to the last idea of the paragraph. So it's really unclear when you start a paragraph, this, mm -hmm. without, you know, so, I mean, you can solve the problem by saying, um, by putting a noun after this, but then, of course, it's redundant. Why are you doing that? Mm -hmm. So you don't even need the this at all. Right. 
which Absolutely. leads into the problem about redundancy, which is a huge problem on, on Wikipedia, wordiness. Mm -hmm. People have have very wordy writing. It was a problem I have that I struggle with all the time myself. Mm -hmm. and you just add in words as you're trying to describe something that yeah. you don't really need. Um, so when you say that, for example, someone is um, – you know, a youthful 13 years old. You really need to say that they're youthful when they're right. you're saying that they're 13, that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean – there was some style guide I saw one time that said, um, you know, or some editor I saw interviewed who said that the best way to improve your writing is to sit down and seriously consider cutting out every other word because we tend to use a lot of words that we don't need to use. And so the more we can work on being concise and really asking ourselves, if we're, if we're doing a copy edit or if we're reviewing our own work, to sit down and ask ourselves, okay, do we need this word? I mean, I think this is one of the things that as much as people hate him for, Tony is really good at pointing out is that, you know, look, these words aren't necessary, and if they're not necessary, then the question is, do they add something significant? Because not every word, obviously, is going to be necessary. There are some things you want to say in a way that's engaging that's not necessary, but that it's, you know, it's useful in some other way. The question then is that bar needs to be really high, and we need to be really careful about what it is that you do. Uh, in, what, what does that word do? What is it adding to the sentence? What is it asking or what is it accenting uh, in terms of our understanding of the subject or whatever it is? I think this is particularly true for adjectives and adverbs. Mm -hmm. um, you have to ask yourself every time you add an adjective and an adverb, do I have to have this? Yes. Uh, Stephen King in his book on writing has a great bit about how he used to read pulp science fiction writers and one is in particular who kept describing things as uh, being done zestfully and uh, how ridiculous it is that you have these descriptions because adverbs in general tend not to add a whole lot. If you're looking at how to write creatively well, you know, they say that adverbs generally should be avoided as much as possible because you can usually describe the verb better. You can describe, you know, the context better in a way that you don't have to say he's, you know, you, he slammed the door aggressively. Well, how else can you slam a door? Or, you know, the you word... You have the a fact stronger that, verb in that. Right, exactly. You pick a stronger verb, you don't need an adverb there. So, uh, Maria, what, what is this about the English major's curse? <laughs> yeah, so I was thinking that uh, something that people do a lot when they repeat themselves over and over and over again, and I liken that to somebody who's writing their paper and they're running out of time to finish it and turn it in, and so they just repeat one major thing several different times. Mm -hmm. And I actually see that in articles where you get this entirely lengthy paragraph where they're saying one thing and it all mm -hmm. boils down to one sentence, but it takes them an entire paragraph to say it. And you just want to, like you said, go there and cut out every other word yeah. and just, just condense it. And people don't understand that it, it really takes a lot, willpower for me, to right. go through a paragraph like that and make sense of what, what are you saying? What do you mean? Sure. What does it amount to? Absolutely. Well, two of the things that really catch my eye when I'm copy editing on Wikipedia and other places is that uh, the confusion between your and your has just become endemic across the society. I think we've a lot of people seem to have given up on trying to understand the difference between them. I had saw somebody on a internet forum once suggest that we should pronounce the words differently. Uh, that is to say, we should pronounce it your uh, if we're talking about you are and your if it's the possessive. Um, but I, I just think it's important for us to recognize there is a difference there, and it 
it, it matters. And if, yeah, like what Wadawit said about how we come across to the rest of the world is one of the reasons I think that's so important, especially with that split. And then the it's, it's question, um, the basic thing I always say to my students, and sometimes I even make them chant it so that they might sink in, uh, is that there is no apostrophe in the possessive it. If you're talking about the robot cutting off its arm, there is no apostrophe there. Uh, so I often I uh, try to solve that problem on Wikipedia by telling people there shouldn't be um, contractions in their writing anyway. Okay, why not? Tell us about why not, because that's come up before, and when I first got to Wikipedia, that kind of threw me. I'm like, well, what's wrong with contractions? Talk about that a little bit. A little bit. Um, it's pretty informal, um, and we try to have formal writing on Wikipedia, and so to have those contractions makes it, it look like you're writing the way you speak. Mm-hmm. looks conversational. And so if you find yourself writing a contraction, you know that you're starting to write conversationally. Sure. And so you shouldn't even be using uh, the its form. So you shouldn't even right. run into that problem, I always right. tell people. Yeah. Of course, it would be nice if they knew the difference. Yeah. <laughs> <But> <laughs> And I mean, that's one of the things I think, too, is that Wikipedia has a house style. And of course, any place you're writing for is going to have a house style. But I think a lot of people come into the project thinking, well, you know, I understand MLA style or APA or whatever it is. And I feel like or they know some, you know, their English classes have been very comprehensive and they feel like they have a really good, you know, hold on the the language. And they probably do. But when writing for Wikipedia, there's a certain way we're going to write. And it's important for us to Uh, orient ourselves in that direction. There's so many different things. Um, Uh, One thing I would like to say. Something else like you to wanted see to mention? Text self-contained. Now, there's kind of a danger on Wikipedia that I notice all the time, is to just say, well, I'll just put a, a wiki link, a blue link here, and I don't actually have to ob- explain this obscure term. I can just put a, a blue link, and that'll be. Sometimes they even forget the blue link. They just say, well, here's this complicated um, phrase or or term which may have an, an, a separate article on it, about it on Wikipedia, and they don't even bother to put a blue link in there or search for the appropriate blue link. And so the poor reader who's looking through it either is clicking just constantly to try to figure out what's going on, or it has to go and look up the blue link himself or look somewhere else. And really, I think most articles should be sort of self-contained, again, in the accessibility question, but if mm-hmm. there is a, a, a an, uh, Wikipedia article on that topic, it's nice to not only have it self-contained, but to have a yeah. and just just condense so it. So people don't understand that it really takes a, a lot willpower after all. to yeah. go through a paragraph like that and make sense of what what are you saying? What do you mean? Sure. What does it amount to? Absolutely. Well, two of the things that really catch my eye when I'm copy editing on Wikipedia and other places is that uh, the confusion between your and your has just become endemic across the society. I think we've a lot of people seem to have given up on trying to understand the difference between them. I had saw somebody on a internet forum once suggest that we should pronounce the words differently. Uh, that is to say, we should pronounce it your uh, if we're talking about you are and your if it's the possessive. Um, but I, I just think it's important for us to recognize there is a difference there, and it. It matters, and if yeah, like what Wadawit said about how we come across to the rest of the world is one of the reasons I think that's so important, especially with that split. And then the it's it's question, um, the basic thing I always say to my students, and sometimes I even make them chant it so that they might sink in, uh, is that there is no apostrophe in the possessive it. If you're talking about the robot cutting off its arm, there is no apostrophe there. Uh, so I often uh, try to solve that problem on Wikipedia by telling people there shouldn't be. Um, 
contractions in their writing anyway. Okay, why not? Tell us about why not, because that's come up before. And when I first got to Wikipedia, that kind of threw me. I'm like, what's wrong with contractions? Talk about that a little bit. Um, It's pretty informal, um, and we try to have formal writing on Wikipedia. And so to have those contractions makes it, it look like you're writing the way you speak. Mm-hmm. looks conversational. And so if you find yourself writing in contraction, you know that you're starting to write conversationally. Sure. And so you shouldn't even be using uh, the its forms. You shouldn't even right. run into that problem, I always right. tell people. Yeah. Of course, it would be nice if they knew the difference. Yeah. <laughs> but... right. yeah. And I mean, that's one of the things I think, too, is that Wikipedia has a house style. And of course, any place you're writing for is going to have a house style. But I think a lot of people come into the project thinking, well, you know, I understand MLA style or APA or whatever it is. And I feel like or they know some, you know, the, their English classes have been very comprehensive and they feel like they have a really good, you know, hold on the, the language. And they probably do. But when writing for Wikipedia, there's a certain way we're going to write. And it's important for us to uh, orient well, ourselves in that direction. There's so, so many different things. Um, uh, one thing Jill, I would like have to say something is else I like you to wanted see... to mention? Text self-contained. Now, there's kind of a danger on Wikipedia that I notice all the time is to just say, well, I'll just put a, a wiki link, a blue link here, and I don't actually have to ob- explain this obscure term. I can just put a, a blue link, and that'll be... Sometimes they even forget the blue link. They just say, well, here's this complicated um, phrase or, or term, which may have an, an, a separate article on it, about it on Wikipedia, and they don't even bother to put a blue link in there or search for the appropriate blue link. And so the poor reader who's looking through it either is clicking just constantly to try to figure out what's going on or it has to go and look up the blue link himself or look somewhere else. And really, I think most articles should be sort of self-contained again in the accessibility question. But if mm-hmm. there is a, a, a an, uh, Wikipedia article on that topic, it's nice to not only have it self-contained, but to have a so the person can look to get a little more information. After all, that's the whole point of a hyperlinked document. That's what makes it different than previous several centuries' worth of writing, is we do have hyperlinked documents, and we should be taking advantage of that. But maybe uh, we shouldn't be overlinking, and um, we, we also should make it as part of the house style, exactly. Yep. This is part of a house style question. Isn't it? Yeah, what is overlinking? What is underlinking? What kind of quotation marks should we use? When what kind I of spelling it should wrong we and use? People corrected me. Um, how did all of you learn the house style? Usually Maria, we haven't heard from you in a while. That's right. Same with me. Yeah. Yeah, Somebody comes along me. and says you're doing it wrong, and then you learn the right way, mm-hmm. basically. You learn by example. Yeah. I'm one of those people who actually reads the freaking manual. So I, you know, when I was doing the first article on Balzac, a lot of it I think said you should check out the manual of style at some point. And so I actually went, sat down one day and just read the whole thing from start to finish. Um, now I know that a lot of people probably aren't going to do that, so it's a good idea I think to, yeah, you know, be bold and and write articles and have people comment on them, but then also sort of try to check yourself as you're writing, and the more you can improve. The, the process as you're doing it, the less people will have to clean up after you uh, on the second time around or whatever it is. Well, I still have um, somebody else want to talk about what they were, how they got good at learning how style. Said, well, you're doing this the wrong way, and um, it keeps changing every week, so you might want to. Yeah. 
Well, actually, yeah, I think we've got a, a number of ways here then. We've got people who just sort of learned it ad hoc as people corrected them. Um, I actually also read the entire manual of style. I took like several days and, and read the whole thing. And actually now the signpost is um, having monthly updates mm-hmm. about what changes. Mm-hmm. So that's actually very helpful. So you don't have to keep rereading it for, for all the changes that, that keep yeah. getting made. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, um, I mean, I think it is, it is helpful to know the style so that, you know, you don't have to get into big debates about, you know, that, that the sort of minutia yeah. uh, of the writing that you can have. Spaced, spaced and yeah. dashes are okay instead of. <laughs> right, exactly. Dashes, but I think another way to learn it is to say, oh, I have a question about what should I do about dashes or what should I do about the serial comma and then just go look up that particular thing that day. And then yeah. you can just learn it over, you know, a period of months. Sure. I think money had something to say about the house style. Yeah, very much like Maria. I learned it just by writing and being corrected. And my first couple featured article candidates were rather frustrating because lots of people, lots of uh, reviewers have different concepts of what is in the manual of style. And when they change so quickly, then uh, lots of people have, you know, conflicting ideas of what's in the manual of style. And so people who are learning it that way often uh, get, you know, get very frustrated. I know I was because people were giving me conflicting advice about how to do it. So reading it, of course, and then being, uh, being updated on it uh, is, is, um, is, is advisable, but it's difficult to do it because it is such a large page and it does change so quickly and there's so many different small details on it. Recently, I'm, I wrote my, my, uh, my, my most recent article to be featured in the future without linked dates. And, uh, of course, the first change somebody made to it was linking the dates, and he didn't realize that that had been dropped. And yeah. it was actually still in contention. It's still under contention for being dropped, should it be in the manual of style or not. So keeping up with the changes is difficult. Yeah. I would also like to promote the idea of automating things from the, the manual of style. So, like, I'm very excited about the Dash bot mm-hmm. that user Brighter Orange made that fixes all the dashes. Yeah. So if you don't want to learn the dash rules, you can just use these various bots, for example, that people have made for things. Mm-hmm. I'm always a little nervous about letting technology take care of things like that just because I've seen The Matrix too many times. And my dad never let me go skiing with poles. He's like, what do you do if you lose the poles and you don't know how to stop? And I'm, I always tell my students not to trust spell check for the same reason. Uh, Maria, did you have something about uh, things that you've learned in the house style? Well, the thing about the manual style is that I understand why they created it, the Wikipedia gods, why they created it, why it exists. <laughs> but, but the there's, cabal. Yes, there's, there's things about it that really bugs me. As somebody who, I'm, I'm getting my master's in English, I, I think I have some kind of a hold over the English language, and then I come to Wikipedia and then they start telling me that I'm supposed to be using logical quotations where the commas and the punctuation goes outside of the quotation marks, and everything I learned said that you don't do that. It looks sloppy, it's unprofessional, and then when I take my first featured article to Wikipedia, everybody at featured article candidate people go in and they change all of them and i'm going no what are you doing what are you doing and then you read the manual style at least parts of it like i have and you go oh so this that's how they do it here and then i end up doing that in my papers and my professors yell at me right no doubt 
it's tricky to be able to switch gears so much between it different is. things that your audiences you're writing for. You know, Langston Hughes said, my motto is I live and thrive is to speak and understand all jive. And I think that's something we have to do when we're writing. And I tell my students this all the time. You can tell me to shut up if you get sick of hearing me say that phrase. I tell my students. But, uh, you know, when you, yeah, when you're when you're talking to your friends at the Burger King parking lot, it's a different way of speaking than when you're going for a job interview. And I think writing is the same way, except that, yeah, in Wikipedia we have a specific – there's a specific way of doing certain things. And uh, yes. it's just a matter of learning how to do those things and learning to turn off that part of your brain when you go back to other places that have a different way of doing it. So. Well, one of the things is um, the national spelling rules. Um, I'm mostly have I mostly write British articles, articles about British topics. So I have to write in British English, mm-hmm. but I speak American English. Mm-hmm. So it's much easier for me to write it all in American English and then sort of translate it into British English. But I've noticed that British English spellings have started to creep into my dissertation <laughs> as I'm writing because I'm just getting more familiar with British spelling. So now I've had to like fix the dissertation spellings back when I was, to American English. When I was like 16, I fell in love with the British spelling of color and honor. And I don't think I've spelled them the American way ever since. But I think that's sort of a personal preference. But I think I'm going to need you to help me with Emmeline Pankhurst when I get ready to send that along because I know that should be British English and it's not currently. I'm trying Again, the, to do the it. Daniel Style has a nice little chart for yeah, I know, uh, and I'm British trying to help English, that. Australian English, Canadian I spell, English. I spell an organization with an S, but I worry that I'm letting things through. I wonder if we could talk real quickly about the importance of reading on Wikipedia because, you know, when we talk about how to get better at things, I tell my students all the time that the best way to get better at writing is to read a lot, and that's what most people will say. I tell my Um, students that too. (laughs) Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I I think it's something that we agree upon. Um, But one of the things I think is interesting that Stephen King said is that we can learn as much from bad writing as we can from good writing because if you read something that's poorly written – our brains tend to say, hey, wait, that's wrong. And so we're sort of reinforcing in our minds what it is that's wrong. Now, of course, the caveat there is that you have to know that it's wrong. So, you know, um, it's not that you just read anything and you'll get better all the time. But um, I don't know. I found reading to be immensely helpful for me. And even reading other people's work on Wikipedia can be useful because you're you're seeing things come up over and over again and you're thinking logically about how to organize articles. Um, well, you're thinking about the kinds of questions to ask about your own Right. I mean, this is why it's so beneficial for students to read terrible writing, <laughs> you know, so that they think, wow, I should think about having paragraph divisions, you know, if they read a, a paper that has no paragraph divisions, for example, yeah. you know, then they yeah. think, wow, I should have paragraphs. Um, right. It's extremely they, useful yeah. for them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm thinking the kinds of questions my students should really ask themselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, some Wikipedia articles need to ask that, too. <laughs> There are some that are just like blocks of text, you know, that have no paragraphs. But, I mean, when you start to ask questions about writing, about other people's work, you start to internalize that set of questions that you have Mm -hmm. to ask yourself. It's extremely useful. No doubt. Maria, Moni, Phil, thoughts on that? Well, on the on the uh, on the the blocks of paragraphs, there is there is a, a sense of style to the aesthetics of of an article as well, where you know overwhelming paragraphs are overwhelming, and you know people aren't going to want to slog all the way through them. Um, and there's there's just a, a balance not only to the writing, but a balance to how the article appears as you can scroll through it and uh, you can pick out information uh, and you can concentrate on on 
on the entire topic as a whole. Um, and because it is stylized writing, it's an article. It's not a novel. It's an article, and you're supposed to be able to get, you know, it's an overview, get information quickly, get the most important parts, and and, and get it yes, uniformly uh, oh, throughout sorry. the site. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Phil, I was just going to mention. Yes, uh, a little technology glitch here. I guess. Yeah, not. I was going to mention. Um, you know, one of the things we. The oh no, go ahead. So. No, that's fine. That is another thing that really strikes me. I as something that I run into all the time. Mm-hmm. I quite often find people who don't quite understand where to divide things up into paragraphs, or or maybe they did and through copy editing of dozens of people, things kind of the original organization might have become lost with people adding and subtracting things. And I, I very often will notice. two or three different paragraphs, or conversely, I'll notice one par- one big paragraph that has two or three separate ideas all lumped into one paragraph when really it probably should be two or three separate paragraphs. And that's another common, common mistake in Wikipedia, I notice. Yeah, no doubt. Um... One of the things we had talked about is, um, and we're running a little short on time here, but just to really quickly talk about this, um, the, you know, there was this league of copy editors that came and it served a good function for a while, and then I guess it got overloaded and people just weren't participating in things, um, and it's now a defunct project. I'm wondering if folks have thoughts about how we can emphasize to people how important copy editing is and get more people doing it. Well, um, my because it's something idea, that really needs what to be I done like to, do. to a lot of articles. A lot, uh, of articles. as you know, I quite often have been involved in some pretty serious, controversial areas, but I've taken a break from that for the last couple of months, and I just uh, will f- pick up a topic of something I'm interested in, or a movie I just saw, and I'll look it up on Wikipedia, and just while I'm watching TV or doing something else, listen to the radio, I'll just, or working in another window, I'll just idly copy edit that article. And if I find any interesting terms or things I want to I'm copy editing. I'll click on those. I'll copy edit those those uh, articles, and I will just follow along a chain of dozens of articles like that whenever I feel uh, motivated or uh, just bored or whatever. I want something to do, and I find I can do at least a light job of copy editing, and I think improving or I hope improving these articles. Uh, pretty quickly, it's pretty easy. It's very low stress by and large because most of the articles I go to are not the real heavily trafficked articles. You know, if you just randomly pick things you're interested in or that you've run into in your daily life, you know, about a, a dish you ate at your grandmother's or something, uh, you can find lots of uh, little technology in a big um, controversial area or not some huge contentious uh, <laughs> fight or, or um, debate with someone else about how the article should read. And so you can just very easily and quickly um, just... Uh, uh, whip through an article, link it, fix the spacing, fix the paragraphs, fix the sentences, grammar, spelling, and so on and so forth. It doesn't have to be perfect, but you can easily make uh, quite a few edits to improve it drastically, and then just move on to the next one, and not really worry about moving it up. You know, I mean, normally what I'm working on are, are uh, start level or stub level or B level articles mm-hmm. that just are in terrible shape for paragraphs. And that's another that they're actually a little little uh, easier on the eyes, a little easier to read. I'm not really obsessing about can I get this mm-hmm. to GA or FA status, 
I'm just doing it for fun. And if you think about it as just fun, uh, it's, it's really not that onerous at all. FAs are onerous, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, let's see, Moni had something about the League of Copy Editors? Well, the League of Copy Editors was a quite a very useful service. In, my, in a couple of my first uh, featured articles, I used them, but they did get start to get backlogged, and I really didn't what see like exactly what happened, but it kind of got the impression that they weren't really getting rewarded enough for what they were doing. And uh, one of the copy editors that has been very, very helpful with my articles is a user named DanK55, uh, has mentioned that copy editors need to, to get more love. They need to get a better reward than just a barn star and a monumental thank you. Uh, what that would be, I don't know, but uh, because even as article writers, we get a barn star sometimes, and we get a little bronze star, and we get the, just the self-satisfaction of knowing that we wrote a really, really good article that was well-researched, and lots of people read it, and becomes... Uh, it becomes a, a, a well-read uh, article or... throughout the Internet and a, a, a standard of writing. But what is it that, that our copy editors get when we we, you know, we write a lot and you know happen to, to muck it all up and they come in and they clean it up behind us and they actually turn it from you know, questionable, what were you trying to say, into brilliant prose. So, right. uh, so if it doesn't exist, then on Wikipedia, why not create something for it? Yeah. And I think, I mean, personally speaking, I found that the template structure of the League of Copy Editors got too obtuse for me to really be able to deal with because it was there was all this stuff about adding code here and changing things over there and all these different pages. And um, I think that may have contributed to its decline, but obviously there's a lot of other elements in the equation as well. Uh, Maria, you had something about the League or some other thing? Well, Wait. yes. Even though it is defunct, there are some wonderful copy editors out there. Yeah. But some people don't realize how long and, and it takes to copy edit an article. And I mean really copy edit. Mm -hmm. And it's not only just a matter of knowing proper English or knowing what sounds good and what doesn't, but also, of course, like we just discussed, but also knowing in great detail how the manual style works. Mm -hmm. and, and so... I know when I look at featured article candidates, the first comment is always from somebody who gives a few examples from the lead, the, the lead section of the article. And then they say this article needs a copy edit throughout. But that's as far as they go. Right. And I think what we need to do is stress that copy right. editing it's, it's, needs to be done before you get to that stage. Yes. And it needs to be done throughout the process. Mm -hmm. Because most of the time you'll write an article, then you bring it to good article, and then you add more. So getting... Mm -hmm. It copy edited before you nominate it to GA. It doesn't do much good if it is promoted. You add more stuff. You completely rewrite the article, and then you go straight to FAC. Okay. And the fact mm -hmm. that people don't go through that process, I think, really hurts their chances when they get to featured article mm -hmm. candidates because people are looking for that brilliant prose. And in order to get that, you often have to get two or three, maybe even more people to look at your article in great detail with these little tiny pinpricks of manual of style goodies. And that takes quite a time, so mm -hmm. it's difficult. Yeah. Um, what about, did you want to talk about that? 
Yeah, I mean, I know that when I copy edit articles, it takes me several days, multiple hours per day, maybe like six mm -hmm. hours per day on a decent sized article. It's very, very time consuming. Also, because you have to leave long lists of questions for people, oftentimes because yep. you don't understand what they were trying to say or you don't know the topic of an article. I once copy edited a hockey article and I don't know anything about hockey. Mm -hmm. And so I had to leave lots of questions because I didn't even know the basic subject matter. So it's mm -hmm. even more difficult when you're trying trying to, to copy edit an article that you don't know anything about. Um, but I actually wondered, I have a somewhat controversial question. I wonder whether it is um, worthwhile to copy edit articles that aren't well researched. Because or aren't, maybe we could just say we aren't ready for that level. Yeah, of or aren't analysis. researched at all. You know, yeah. they don't if, have any that's sources a question. or, you know, that, that sort of thing. Because sure. once they are researched, they will be completely rewritten. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I can see both sides to that question, actually. I can see why it would be a good thing to have every article copy edited so that every article looks respectable, but I can also see well, the incredible time investment that can be often. put into yeah, that. That's a good question, and it's something I've not, thought about we myself. We might not have the resources for because that. Because most of the, the articles Phil? time into are, are really pretty poor. As I say, they're stubs, they're starts, they're B-class, and so on. And they're quite poorly written and quite often... Uh, don't have any sources or minimal sources associated with them. And so I've wondered, I thought, many times should this just be chucked and thrown out and somebody rewrite it from scratch. And I finally, after pondering this for a while, I realized there still is a value to at least doing a light copy edit that might, rather than go six days into it, you might spend, I don't know, three, four hours at most, maybe even an hour at most uh, in some cases, just cleaning it up and polishing it. And the reason is that if I can that if I can expose some of the salient features and ideas in the article, then I or someone who comes after me can even know what needs to be uh, to have a source for it. I mean when it's when it's hard to even understand what the point of the article is, you can't even see the main ideas because it's so so poorly written. And, and needs a, a good copy edit. It's kind of like polishing it up a little bit, and then you can see its real weaknesses, and you can add those in. Before it's cleaned up, uh, you can't even really tell where uh, where you might need a source or if you need a source, because you can't even tell what it's trying to say. So I've decided that just a light copy edit rather mm -hmm. can actually help, even if you're going to delete the article. Because then you can even at least understand what it was trying to be about. If you once you finally understand it, you say, well, still it should be deleted because unencyclopedic or what have you. At least you've made that decision based on some knowledge of what the article was attempting to do. Before copy editing, sometimes that's not that clear at all. It's so hard to read. And that's my two cents on that issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Moni? Well, now that Phil has kind of explained his point, I kind of understand where he's coming from. Um, but if he's t talking about stubs and start classes. Uh, if we're talking more about good articles and articles that are up for feature, then I think that the sources are going to be absolutely necessary. Because when you're talking about copy editing, you're talking about polishing, which is a, a word that's been used several times here. But there's got to be something to polish in the first place. There's got to be the substance there first. And you have to have the, the information in it before 
before you can actually polish it in order for it to make sense. And I prefer instead of copy editing what exists to just rewrite it from the from top to bottom about ninety percent of what it should be. Uh, when I start to concentrate and I overtake an article that's kind of that's not as as good as it should be, uh, because you know absolutely almost every I'd say about ninety percent of all content disputes can be taken care of by just reading more and learning more about the topic. Yeah, and you know, I mean, you wouldn't wax and polish the kitchen floor if you know the kids are coming home from the mud wrestling match uh, later that day. So I think it's a matter of yeah, recognizing which steps in the process are coming next and and where to go. Um, just in terms of f- trying to find a solution to this, you know, there there is a pretty lengthy and and from what I can tell, well used list of people who are willing to do peer reviews of articles. N- even though the LOCE is defunct, I wonder if there if there's some worth in having, or maybe there is what a I list of people who are willing to do copy edits and, and um, a way to contact those folks. Does anybody know any information about that? Is is the part Sometimes of that I list of peer review people who are I willing to copy edit? Friends. It might be. I thought there were some people on there. We Let's see if I can out. pull it up. Yeah, that's I think that's I good do. too. Yeah. yeah. I feel sorry for my friends sometimes. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. So. All right, on well, that I'll note, um, I actually have to go. So uh, if there are any final thoughts, maybe folks can throw them in here. Or Actually, I think we should emphasize that there are a lot of different levels of copy editing. And I think that was revealed well with both uh, with the last few comments well, we had. Where Phil was talking about I mean, light commenting, mm-hmm. uh, I mean light copy editing on like stubs and starts, you know, just to make sure that the articles are getting across the main idea. Um, and then we, we were talking about um, actually polishing articles that have lots of research. Those are different kinds of copy editing, and people can do different yeah, kinds of copy I, editing. You can be I, I an expert at different completely. kinds I of mean, copy when editing. When I go in and I mm-hmm. copy, so edit we, I think we want to emphasize that as well. For sure. FA status or GA status, it's an entirely different process, and I will have dozens, if not uh, well over a hundred or two hundred references, and I will really, really put a huge amount of effort into it. The kind of copy editing I w- very different nature. It's just something I can do um, uh, while I'm waiting for a friend to call, uh, maybe. In a break, in a in a TV program or a movie, um, maybe uh, as I'm just um, like to getting ready for bed, getting ready to go to sleep, I'll just do a quick copy edit of a few things. Uh, maybe you know I I look up an article and I on t- maybe a, an author of a book I just read, and I realize it's it's a lousy <laughs> lousy article, and I'll just whip into it and just hit the 10 or 20 biggest problems. I can do it quickly and do it easily. I don't expect the article ever to make it to GA or FA class. All I want to do is just to clean it up a little bit so it's a little more palatable and leave it slightly better than how I found Mm. it. I'll let somebody else sweat it out a year, two years, five, ten years from now to actually push it up farther if it's ever going to happen. Right. 
Yeah, no doubt. Um, so looking here on the peer review volunteer list, there is a section for people who are willing to copy it, but it says general copy editing alongside of sort of like arts and philosophy and religion. So it's I can imagine some people might be a little confused maybe about what the difference between peer review and copy editing is, and I wonder if that's something we may want to address in the future. Or, or I mean, I mean, we've talked about it here. Maybe we want to try to disassociate or you know disambiguate the link of or the list of people doing copy editing and those doing peer reviews. Um, but I good. actually have to run. So. Oh, thank Thanks for joining us. there's nothing else that's real urgent for folks to talk about, um, I will move to adjourn. All right. I had a lot of fun. Thank you all so very much. Yeah, this has been a great uh, conversation, and we hope the listeners have enjoyed it as well. And uh, hopefully we'll be back again with some more information or discussion about editing on Wikipedia. Absolutely. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.